0: you to listen. Then what? Share. It.
1: The Melbourne Youth and Social Workers Group and the Knowledge on Tick podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Boon Wurrung and Wurundjeri people, their elders past and present. We would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the land, her children and our families. We would like all of us to show respect for each other, Mother Nature and the creatures on the land and the sea.
2: Hey everyone, the Melbourne Youth and Social Work Facebook group would like to welcome you to the Knowledge On Tick podcast. We are Josh and Nat and we will be your co-hosts for the potty. Knowledge On Tick is a podcast offering real-life conversations and insights every week with workers in the field covering a range of topics surrounding the youth and social work world. We are so grateful to have you here and happy listening.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Before we get into today's episode, this will be our very first session of what we're calling reverse advertising. So if you haven't listened to the most recent episode with Nat and myself, uh, please check it out. But what we will be doing is providing a couple of pieces of free advertising at the start of every session. Uh, this week, we are going to be advertising Eat Up Australia. Uh, if you go back to episode 17, Nat and I had a, uh, a conversation with Lyndon Galea from Eat Up Australia, where he talked to us about the fact that Eat Up Australia provide or have provided a, close to a million sandwiches for disadvantaged children at school. They've provided these to nearly 500 schools across New South Wales, Victoria, and Queensland. So please have a a look at Eat Up Australia, um, donate if you wish, or you can even uh, get in touch and offer your workplace to volunteer help making sandwiches for a day. Uh, The second set of advertisement we're going to be doing today is St Kilda Mums. If you haven't heard of St Kilda Mums, I would be very surprised, but they provide Material aid support to thousands of mums across Victoria. They've been going for a long time. Super cool organization. They can take donations. So if you have any old uh, baby clothes and baby items, check out their website. The list of things that they can accept is really, really long. Uh, You can also donate new items and you can also donate money. They also have corporate volunteering as well. So if your workplace wants to volunteer for a day, you can go down to their warehouse in Clayton and give them a hand. So please check out Eat Up Australia and St. Kilda Mums. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. I'm Josh. And I'm Nat. And today we're joined by Ben. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Uh, could you give you, give yourself a little introduction?
3: Yeah, sure. So, um, Ben Vassalo, I am the CEO at Youth Projects. Um, my kind of most commonly referred title, but I have wear lots of different hats. I'm also non-executive director for Hepatitis Victoria, um, act on a couple of advisory committees to the state government. I'm chair of the BGK LEN. Um yeah, lots of different community roles. I'm also a school council president. I'd look after our netball club, but yeah, the list goes on. Wow. Yeah, busy man.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: You know how the other day yeah. I was like, you know exactly what I'm thinking. I said. There's a meme and it says, you have the same amount of hours in a day as Beyonce. And I said, I need to think of a better one because I don't really like Beyonce that much. So it doesn't motivate me. Like, I've got the same amount of hours in a day as Josh because Josh was training to run 10Ks and now it's Ben, sorry, being
0: replaced.
3: It's interesting because I saw the same meme and I read it completely differently because um, I mean, I always get really philosophical. So this conversation could go anywhere, but the concept of the same 24 hours um, is just ridiculous because you don't have the same resources, right? Mm. So my 24 hours versus someone who's incredibly vulnerable versus a very wealthy person who has assistants and dry cleaners and whatnot. You know, it's a very, Mm. very interesting concept, the same 24 hours.
2: Yeah, someone that cooks for them every day. Mm. That's right. That sort of stuff. That's a good point. That makes me feel better about my (laughs) life. It made me feel better. (laughs) You're still doing lots of things though. You Um, are.
3: Yeah, that's cool. All right.
2: Jump into some questions. Go for it. Cool, cool. So the first one is, what was your first ever job?
3: Yeah, so my first official job was Baker's Delight. I applied as like a 15-year-old kid, um, 14 and 9 months it was back then. Yeah. Um, but my first unofficial job was uh, scrap metal factory. My parents had a scrap metal factory um, back in the 90s and I used to kind of, you know, count cans and wrap them up and weigh them and that kind of stuff. But Baker's Delight was my first job, $7.69 an hour. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, actually, interesting story, Rosie, who was my kind of manager, has recently transferred to local. Called Baker's Delight, and I walked in the other day. And I was like, Are you Rosie? And she's like, Yes, who are you? I'm like, I'm you know, Ben. I used to work for you. And she goes, Oh my god, you were such an asshole! <laughs> <laughs> like a lamb, Great to see you. Wow,
2: <laughs> that is so
1: good. I love that. That's a long time of Baker's Delight for old Rosie.
3: Yeah, well, that she said to me, what are you doing now? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of working community health. And she's like, no, but like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm the CEO. And she's like, and I'm still here on 21 bucks an hour. Oh, I, was like, I was like, oh, Rosie. <laughs> oh, Rosie,
0: do
3: you want to come with me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just left. Was I was like, I don't know what to do.
2: <laughs> it's like,
3: I don't have any more energy to help Rosie feel good about herself. I'm out. I'm done. She already called
2: you an asshole, to be fair. Yeah, See that's you, right. Rosie. That's
3: yeah. right.
1: She oh, looks so... like seventy-five years in bakers' alike can make you a little bitter. Yeah, that's
3: <laughs> right. And I was kind of—I had this pre-prepared kind of positive feedback for her because I really valued my time there. Wow, like they okay. were methodical with their cleaning regimes and the way that you had to handle the ovens and customer service and all that kind of stuff. It really set me in good stead. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, she was grumpy, and I was like, "All right, see you, Rosie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out." Uh-huh. No, too yeah. self. Yeah,
2: don't be grumpy at work.
3: Yeah,
1: it's
2: a she missed out on some really good feedback, some kindness. There.
1: She really did. <laughs> she really did. <laughs> Oh, Rosie. Love that. Um, All right, if you were a WWE wrestler, (laughs) what would be your walkout song?
3: Um, Look, it would be something ridiculously cheesy and I think it would have to come from RuPaul. Um, You'd know RuPaul, Mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. famous drag queen. If you don't know RuPaul, Google, you'll get up to date. I'll
2: send you my stand details Um,
3: you can watch. Yeah, so like... RuPaul brought um, the drag community to the forefront of mainstream television as one Emmys. Anyway, it'd yeah. be something crazy like that, you know. Um, he RuPaul sings like the worst songs. It's all <laughs> auto-tuned, but it's like it's always got a really good kind of strong theme behind it. Yeah. Um, like you better work, bitch, or you know something like that. Really <laughs> yeah. strong, and that's what I'd come out to because that's what WWE wrestling fans yeah. really want to see is yeah. a, a queer bloke coming out to a <laughs> yeah. you know a drag queen song. So that will probably be what. I would do.
2: I love that. Did... I actually got really into the RuPaul stuff over COVID. Oh, I'd, I'd sort of just, I'd seen it, I'd seen some of the shows and, and sort of advertised and stuff, and then all of a sudden there was like thousands of series yes. on and stand, and I was like, all right, and I love it.
3: It's incredible. It's incredibly crass, it's humorous, it's funny, but it's inc- it's liberating yeah. is kind of how I feel, particularly for the queer community and young queer community, you and now see drag queens like right in your living room like Mm. they're in your house now it's not something you have to go to a bar and see and the messages Mm. around the trauma that people have suffered and how they've overcome that and it's incredible absolutely love it so i would do that
1: yeah i love that i uh, i'm trying to think there's like i think i listened to a podcast that someone might have talked about um is it rue
3: yes paul it is Mm.
1: Does she do, like, a show about other drag queens in cities or something? Like, almost like a competition? Yeah, so that's the
3: whole show. Ah, I've heard about this, but I can't
1: remember where it was now.
3: Yeah, it's called Drag Race, RuPaul's Drag Race. It
1: was, oh, uh, a podcast with... Was it Joe Rogan? Nah, not Joe Rogan. Dak Shepard, maybe. Oh, yeah. I think. That would make sense. I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: It's an international franchise now. Yeah, right. Netherlands, Thailand, okay. England, um, and Australia will get its first run next year. Okay. Hopefully hosted by Courtney Arc, which is like one of our that's biggest exciting. kind of drag names in the world. So exciting
2: oh,
1: stuff. Awesome.
2: That's so cool. You have to, I'll send you my Stan stuff so you can make be <laughs> another
1: freeloader
2: <laughs> on my Yeah, account. chuck it on
1: the family account. I think I've got Stan. I'll <laughs> check it out. I think so. <laughs> um, it's my yours. one. I'm Thank sorry. you very much.
2: Sealing my <laughs> questions two weeks in a row. Um, If you had to change careers, what would you do?
3: Yeah, good question. I always thought it would be something like teaching or, you know, um, law. Um, I've got an incredible appetite for politics, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that I could put my family through that. You know, it's so intense and it's so personal these days. Um, My ultimate goal now is to just buy a nice little plot, maybe close to home on the peninsula or Gippsland, have a farm produce store, sell a, you know, door, my partner's um, a hairdresser, and we've just made the move from getting rid of a salon to actually setting up a home salon. Oh, cool. I cool. COVID's really taught us what family time actually means and yeah. keeping things local. So, yeah, something like that, something small, but it would still have to have um, some level of purpose or impact. I'd turn it into a social enterprise. So yeah. I do with everything. Turn That's it into exactly a social said. enterprise. <laughs> yeah, it's got to have impact. I've got to be involved with changing people's lives or I'm not interested.
2: Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. We were laughing when we did the questions <laughs> ourselves because we were yeah. like, yeah, Josh said, oh, I'd, I'd buy a barbershop and be a barber. Um, and I said, yeah, yeah, I'd get like a cafe or a restaurant or something. And then by the end of it, we're both like, but then we'd integrate yes. like training yeah. for young people, yeah. like social enterprise and give the money back all the <laughs> Okay, we ended up back in the same spot.
3: Well, we literally just did that. So, I mean, we're, we, we had a social enterprise that was very small on Hosea Lane in Melbourne, yeah. just kind of a little pop-up coffee shop with op shop. Um, but a friend of mine um, came to work for Youth Projects and we've really revitalised it and actually just opened a massive social enterprise at the Alfred Hospital. Um, So, they had a massive $4.5 million rebuild of their education and excellence Mm centre, and we're the anchored tenant right in the middle, um, and basically, Seven till seven every day. We're serving great coffee, great food to all of the healthcare workers, um, and it's incredible. We'll probably put about one hundred and fifty kids in training there each year, wow. which is pretty exciting. Wow. That's
0: huge.
3: Yeah, that was pretty. That's pretty amazing. And another one opens in two weeks at Rosanna Train Station in partnership with um, Metro and Banyule Council. So it's definitely a model you can have fun and make an impact at the same time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So, Rosanna train station and the Alfred Hospital. Correct. Okay. Yes. Cool. Good to know.
3: Yeah. I'm if right you're there, go
1: check it out. Go check it out. Yeah.
3: Melbourne's best coffee. Plug for um, Reverence in Brunswick. Amazing. Yeah. They're at the point where they actually have different beans for like black coffee and milk based coffee. It's like amazing. Yes. It's incredible. It's typical Melbourne. So, check yeah. it out. We oh, yeah?
2: are coffee yes. snobs, aren't mm. we? I was watching something the other day that said Melbourne are some of the biggest coffee snobs. I was like, no. Nah. Yeah,
0: we are.
3: That's right. Yeah, we definitely are. Yeah. I don't realise until I
2: go, like, we're very lucky to have, like, somewhere nice to have coffee next door and then you go somewhere and get just a stand of coffee.
1: Mm. And like, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiled for choice. Can you tell us about a time at work that you've made a mistake and what have you learned from
3: it? Yeah, sure, I think um, if I'm honest, I've made lots of mistakes of my career. It's the ability to learn from them. And I think really tapping into the power of vulnerability and sharing um, those mistakes. I think personally, the biggest mistake that I've made was probably not standing up very early on in my career I was, as I was progressing um, to some pretty intimidating behaviours. So I think mm. that people are surprised that even in our sector, we, um, we endure some really tough, intimidating characters. Mm. Um, and in the past, it definitely was a boys club. Um, and I think that people didn't really talk about that but there was a great deal of middle-aged white men making all the decisions and not allowing anyone diverse in to kind of consult on those decisions. Um, And I kind of allowed that to happen. You know, I allowed um, senior leaders to intimidate or make decisions without consulting, and I didn't stand up for my team, particularly at a kind of team leader level. What you might be um, facing now is at that level, you're kind of a conduit for your team, but you're not really sure which team you're on. Are you on the senior leadership team? Are you on the frontline team? So I made some mistakes and really backed in leadership Um, and didn't provide that voice for my team and I feel like um, the real consumer voice is then lost because Mm. staff obviously power the consumer voice. So I made some critical errors early on but ultimately my success has been built off listening to the experts around me and surrounding myself with um, great people. So I think that I've been able to circumvent that but that was definitely a big mistake early on.
1: Mm. That's such a good point to make Mm. because it's I feel like that's such a like a Common sort of topic or conundrum, and I was trying to think of an analogy. I can't think of one. You know, maybe kind of comparing it to like a different job. You know, working in a bank and that coming into that role, you could easily know as much as someone that's been there for twenty years. I I can't think of something, but there is that feeling though that when you start working in the the community services field and you meet someone and you know their resume is like twenty years in child protection and thirty years working in drug and alcohol, that how how could I possibly kind of question? either their, their point of view or, or a decision they're making because they have so much experience, but it, you, you so can come up against that um, challenge and, and really believe that something isn't correct or just. And um, it, it it would be very daunting in those scenarios and it's a tricky space to navigate. And yeah, it's... Uh, i guess i don't really have a question back to you i'm just trying to reflect it yeah yeah challenging
3: it is incredibly challenging and i think that there's um particularly in our sector experts have been promoted year on year on year because they're very good at the job that they were in and no disrespect to anybody in any leadership position but what i will say is that if you're a great social worker or a great youth worker that doesn't mean that you make a great leader Mm. they're two very different skill sets i think tapping into your skills and talent and knowledge and study and experience as a frontline worker is very very different to leadership potential I think some skills transfer over but what the sector was doing for a very long time was promoting high performing case managers into leadership positions and it wasn't working Mm -hmm. and now that we've realized that we actually need a different set of talent and a different set of skills but the world's also evolved so now we understand that we can't treat stuff like shit we actually need to listen to them because they've got all the experience so if you're in an environment where you feel like you can't have a conversation upwards then you're not in the right environment that would be very much a toxic environment if your leadership's not able to sit down and have a conversation about your experience their thoughts their views my opinions and really have a robust discussion then that's a really cool workplace to be in and I think that most workplaces will transition to that over the next 10 or 20 years as the last generation retire
0: Mm.
2: So like the really good point that you just made is the last generation that retire, but also the concept um, that you mentioned before about community services, there's definitely a perception that everybody that works in the community services sector are just good people or nice people, (laughs) when really, like, I feel like everybody could say that they've worked with at least one asshole That they're just like, why do they do the job that they do? They don't Mm -hmm. want, obviously don't want to be here. They're unhappy whatever that might be, but it's definitely, I think there's a perception for that, like the broader general public that everybody that does that role are just really lovely, sweet people and that's not necessarily always the case.
3: Yeah, and that's the view, I mean, it doesn't matter at what level of society, that's a view everywhere. Like I talk Mm. to corporate donors and philanthropists all the time, they're kind of like, you're the good people that do the good stuff and I'm like, hold on a second, like we we do all of that stuff and we do it with heart and we do it with passion, but we do it um, through a lens of um, evidence base Um, which informs all of our decision making, but also we're all companies, like we're registered, we have all of this bureaucracy, we have to be accredited. Like, I think when people look at social services or the social economy, they kind of look at us like we're poor. Mm. And I constantly find myself in conversations going, we are really schmick looking organisations. We run lean, we hire good people we manage great outcomes for the community and we still have to manage balance sheets and insurances and risk appetite and all these different things they do in the corporate sector. Um, And I think that we often forget that, you know, we employ um, over a million people in the social economy in Australia. We're responsible for some ridiculous amount of GDP um, and that we need to start to stand taller and take our place in the Australian economy, um, particularly when it comes to workforce development. Mm.
2: And such an important part is workforce development. Mm. Definitely. We'll get into that. We'll ask the last question. <laughs> um, so the last one is, what are your self-care strategies and do you think you implement them well?
0: No, but <laughs> <Yeah. I love laughs> I'm, trying. I'm, I'm trying. I'm it. trying. Oh, Siri, shush. <laughs> um,
3: no, I've got to be honest. I Look, I do have some basic self-care strategies. I, I really love to play netball. I've had to give up most sports over my life because I um, have a chronic disability on my right side. I was born with a club foot, which kind of just deteriorates over time. Okay. Got arthritis and whatnot. Right. Um, but no poor me. I still get out there. I can still get to boot camp. I can play netball, but I don't do them as regularly as I should. Yeah. Um, I absolutely love downtime to read, and I love autobiographies. But I'm kind of that guy that's got like a hundred books <laughs> on the shelf, and each of them are like a third read. Yeah. I think I, the best I did this year was get halfway through Malcolm Turnbull's book, and it was, re- it was really cool, actually. I was
2: going to say, is that good? book. Oh, I've, I've heard a good mixed book. reviews, and I no, want to read it. Brilliant
3: book. I mean, he's, okay. he literally was just in the wrong party, I think, to okay. be perfectly honest. He's too much of a moderate, but, um, yeah, reading is another thing. But I just I, I immerse myself in my kids' lives. So I've got two kids. I really just love having downtime with them because when I'm with them, the phone just can't be a priority. That's the number one thing, they're my priority. Um, so that's kind of you know what I try and do. If I'm incredibly stressed, I've got to a point in my life, I mean, I'm 35, you would have hoped to have learnt what your trigger points are, and I'm really good at exiting stage left. So if it's a really kind of not a nice environment, um, I'll just leave and take space and be like, this is not cool, I'm out. Whether it be a board meeting, a personal matter, you know, the crazy school counts or whatever it is. I'm like, I'm checking out for five minutes. I've learnt. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what I do.
2: Mm, I like them. And I like that you said um, your kids are the priority when you spend time with them. What we were talking about the other day, is there's something really special around playing with kids where they require you to be present yes. as well. Like my nephew, at the moment, his big thing is trying to teach me how to do a backflip. Not that he can do one yet. <laughs>
1: but. You need to keep specifying that that's into the pool. Or no, in the pool. or, or
2: pull or trampoline.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, pool or trampoline. But for me, even if I do go to play on my phone, he'll snatch it off me and do something good. With it. So like. He, there's just an inability to not be present, I yep. think, when you're with kids a lot of the time because they, mm. they demand your attention. They really like
3: that. do. I think the, the ultimate challenge is a transition with society, though, because now it's me taking their phone. So my yeah. kids are a little bit older. I started incredibly young. Um, I would not recommend it ever. <laughs> Don't care what anybody says. Having a child at 20 is not a good idea. Uh, <laughs> I'm so yeah. <laughs> I'm so blessed that he's almost 15 now and he's incredibly academic and he's amazing and he's incredible, but, like, it was hard work. Yeah. I would never do that again. But they're almost 15 and almost 11 so now it's me saying like phones down yeah like this is dad's time yeah. um so yeah it's incredible to watch the next generation change quicker than what i think we did
2: oh and it happens so fast doesn't it
3: that really does
1: yeah 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 my kids were playing with the phone the other day and because we let them do some things yeah uh, luckily a lot of the time it's around music and they're like picking the songs on spotify and stuff but you know when a text message comes on an iPhone and the little banner comes at the top? Ah, uh, yes. Without even blinking, he was flicked using the phone. just flicked it away. And I yes. was like, oh, yeah. dear me. Like... They're in. They're in, yeah, yeah. My son asked me for a phone, he's five. I was
3: like, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think he, d- he needs an iPod and I'll tell you why. So I had this conversation with both of my sisters. They started having children much later, you know, got married and did the whole kind of traditional thing. They had them in their 30s. Um, and I think that you definitely need to manage it. You need to manage content. You need to manage screen time. Mm. But that's the future. Mm. We are right 100%. in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution and it's digital. Mm. So um, as long as we understand the long-term impacts. Kids should be on technology and you should understand that that is going to be best for their career long-term. So, Mm. like, so many people are like, kids shouldn't be on screens. And I was like, are you kidding me? We just spent seven months in lockdown and my kids had to be on screen because that's the only way that they could be educated. I mean, I wasn't doing it. felt sorry for the poor teachers on the other end of the camera, but I was like, yeah, sure, go on your iPad at 9 o'clock at night. What else are we going to do? Yeah. You know, be realistic. It is the way of the future. And I think as long as there's a healthy balance, go for it. Couldn't care. Unless yeah. it's my time, you know. I <laughs> like put that now. bloody phone down. <laughs>
2: <laughs> just a lockout code. Yeah. when you, when yeah, you want that Yeah, that's
3: right. Wi-Fi off, I just unplug it. Yeah.
2: yeah. It's a good point, though, and I've never thought about it in that perspective of that is the way of the future. It's not like we're going to get to 2021 and be like, all right, fuck technology and go back the other way. No, that's like right. Like it's never evolving. It's going to continue to evolve and be a huge part of our lives. And young people, like we were talking about this the other day, they adapt so well to technology. Like mm-hmm. there's actually... It was really, yeah, it's nice that you framed it in a way of, well, that is their future, that is what they're gonna be using.
3: That's right. Mm I think the biggest challenge that we'll focus without kind of steering us off track too much, but access and equity around technology. Mm -hmm. One thing that we definitely found during COVID with Mm -hmm. the young people that we were supporting is that not everyone had access to a top-notch device and not everyone had access to good Wi-Fi, And that was critically challenging for a number of people, particularly the kids that we support up in the Northwest. Mm being able to remain connected to people outside of their family dynamic and unit or wherever their housing situation was, was really challenging. And being able to get funding to get phones and tablets and Wi-Fi and good data packages, I think that we really need to kind of investigate a little bit more what that looks like and what it means or the impact is on the family unit. Because what you'll find with a lot of the young people that we work with is the young person can be the main conduit back to mainstream society, particularly for multicultural families. so they're kind of responsible for interpreting all the information like coronavirus you know mm. that taught us so much around what role young people play in a larger community environment just translating information. Mm -hmm. You know, that was um, one of the key challenges in terms of the the second outbreak, the second lockdown was uh, multicultural families working on security and not necessarily being able to communicate to each other the impacts of coronavirus or where they'd been and contact tracing. So I think, yeah, there's definitely a deficit there and something that we need to think about Mm long-term.
2: You touched on it, but can you tell us a little bit about Youth Projects and the mm. work that you do there?
3: Sure, yeah. sure, so Youth Projects has been around like many community agencies since the 80s. So we, <laughs> we launched in 84. Um, and really it was initially in response to the rise in youth unemployment and alcohol and drug issues in the Northwest. Yeah. So we kind of started around the same time as Task Force. Many people will know Task Force and we're still connected and, uh, and work really well with those guys. Um, and then kind of over the, the 80s really started to push towards um, the AIDS epidemic and that was really challenging for Melbourne. Um, But, yeah, we're kind of entrenched in the northwest of Melbourne. Headquarters is still in Glenroy, although the building's a little bit different because it burnt down in the 80s. Um, It was an old food production facility for Qantas or... Uh At anset or one of those old airlines anyway cool fact while i'm here the reopening was launched by princess die which is pretty incredible yeah, yeah right. a human
2: in the oh is world. it
3: uh, we've got the photo up at head office and every time i walk past i just think how incredible that was i want to
2: just come see that picture yeah. i'm so obsessed with definitely princess please Di. come please
3: come it's pretty incredible Didn't know this? so <laughs> We, we really evolved throughout the 90s um, and kind of started to kind of get deeper into um, working with young people. So mm-hmm. kind of expanded right out to physical health, uh, alcohol and drug counselling, and then moved into the employment skills kind of training space. Um, and then what really became our central focus in the 90s was, and early 2000s was harm reduction. We kind of um, repurposed. When I say we, I wasn't there. I've been there for three and a bit years. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't there. I was a kid in the 80s. Um, but repurposed to focus on harm reduction because of the, um, the HIV AIDS um, challenge that the whole world faced. Mm. Um, and we moved into needle syringe programs. So we were one of the first needle syringe programs based on foot and by car getting out to the community. Those two programs still run today. So oh, wow. we still hand out 1.55 million clean needles every single year across Melbourne CBD by foot and northwestern by car until 2am in the morning and we're really proud of it. Um, yeah, definitely should be. It's an incredible, an incredible piece of work and, and not just from a, a social perspective or a health perspective, but we now know that because of the decisions that the government made at the time, we're returning somewhere around $27 economically for every dollar in NSP funding. Wow. And that's been researched, evidence-based, and it's international. So every dollar we spend, our funding is about a dollar per needle. Mm. So 27 times 1.55 million. I'll let the math geniuses do that. <laughs> anyway, so around the same time, the opioid crisis hit, heroin crisis hit. Uh, and as history tells us, the state government um, came to youth projects and said, look, we need some support. There was some AOD hotspot funding because the original safe injecting room didn't get up mm. and the living room was born. Uh, And the living room then and now, although it's sophisticated and evolved, basically is a free primary health service and drop-in centre for people experiencing homelessness. Um, But they're not young people. They're definitely adults. Mm. Um, And we had a large percentage of injecting drug users back in the day, and we still do, and we support them, Uh, of course, with no judgment. But basically now the centre has doctors, so GPs, nurses, mental health, AOD, harm reduction, life and employability skills, plus... Showers, laundry, charging, Wi-Fi, food, the lot, everything that you need. Uh, And that model um, is really kind of centre-based. And then when the centre closes at about 5 o'clock, we start outreach. So we've got night nursing outreach, night nursing harm reduction teams. Uh, And and it's pretty similar to the model we've got in Glenroy for young people, but we do a great deal more work in the kind of economic space, so employment, jobs and skills development. So we've um, changed a lot in three and a half years. We did need to do uh, a bit of work on sort of modernising, and sophisticating our approach to the community market. Um, And we redeveloped our strategic plan and now we've grown to almost 120 staff. Um, Half the programs we delivered today we didn't have three years ago, which is pretty exciting. And we've really kind of expanded our social enterprise movement, as we call it. Um, And, yeah, it's an amazing organisation. Absolutely love working there. I knew the day that I'd arrived that I'd found my home.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so lovely. For um, so many fucking amazing things to pick apart there I wish I had a pen to write things down but for people that are listening that might not know what a social enterprise is can you explain that a little bit for us
3: yeah definitely so don't be lured into thinking that every social enterprise is the same because they're not you can literally (laughs) just slap a social enterprise label on anything and be like we're doing it for good it's like
2: an organic label yeah yeah
3: and it's kind of really tied in with this kind of new terminology around for purpose or social purpose I'm like check their DGR status they are not charities and they are just looking like they're doing good but anyway the idea Idea of a social enterprise is to really support vulnerable people um, in building skills and developing, um, you know, life skills as well as employment skills and supporting them on their journey, but doing it in a, in a kind of um, business environment. So making sure that we uh, whatever you're doing in a social enterprise, the product that you're selling or the service that you're offering generates margin, and then you use that money to run the rest of your services. Yeah, that's kind of how social enterprise works. We started with a little coffee shop. It's now turned into a multi-million-dollar business that supports hundreds and thousands of young people every single year, uh, and it's through a hospitality lens primarily, mm-hmm. not. Um, not saying that that's the the industry with the greatest growth, but what it is, is a great entry market for young people and understanding that hospitality comes with routine, hygiene, personal skills, customer service, and it's really sets a foundation and platform for many other um, jobs and careers. Um, So yeah, it's really exciting. We love it. We've got some other ideas. We're looking at a cleaning social enterprise. Um, So looking at, um, well, we're kind of at viability stage at the moment, I look at all of our, organisations in this sector and we pay a lot of money to have our facilities cleaned Mm -hmm. so my thinking and my feeling is that I'm happy for someone else to take the ideas Mm so other people have used it before but mine's better of course (laughs) basically what we (laughs) should be doing yeah (laughs) yeah this has now been trademarked um is taking the cleaning um contract concept across the community services and state and federal government sector and actually getting um, people who have experienced homelessness or are still experiencing homelessness and actually training them uh, in cleaning and maintenance and getting them to clean the facilities that support them Mm. um so we're kind of Looking at that, and we're looking at, of course, hairdressing and barbering, what that could actually look like for young people long term.
2: Yes, that's the best.
3: Yeah, pretty exciting stuff.
2: I think 90% of my clients either want to be a hairdresser or something in beauty. Yep or a youth worker. So I feel <laughs> like there's them. two. Great like, careers. Yeah, but both phenomenal careers. So and
3: both it's... incredibly underpaid. Don't forget yeah. that. Any opportunity to promote the fact that hairdressers and youth workers are so underpaid, mm. critically underpaid. Um, we definitely need to do something about that. And a bit
0: of a about right, about
2: hairdressers that they're overpaid because yeah. often people see the awards or the like big events that people do hair for or the big salons and it's like, well, yeah, but that's not... That, that's one very no, small part. The margin's
3: it. very tiny. Let me tell you, mm. helping my partner set up his own small business and moving a salon, even home, the yeah. margins are tight. Yeah. Like we're not moving to um, to rack anytime soon. Like that's <laughs> not going to happen. We've got like a, a glorified social worker over here as a CEO and a hairdresser, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not going to happen.
0: Yeah,
2: it is hard. I love that.
1: Um, where was Where's the us. living room located?
3: Oh, good question. So it's on Hosea Lane. In Melbourne CBD, okay, yeah. so the big graffiti kind of, we're anchored in the middle of it in an old oh, wow. hosiery factory, um, heritage listed building, it's beautiful. Uh, unfortunately, we have to leave soon, the rent has just got too much and we don't own that building. Mm. So we've just started a campaign to find a new home, but yeah, at the moment, Hosie Lane, uh, very discreet entrance, but feel free to pop by and say hello.
1: Yeah, that's mm. awesome. And what does it mean to have the living room and all of the services that you provide for people? What does it mean if you, did, if you didn't have that and they weren't available for those people?
3: Sure. I mean, it would mean there would be a significant impact on the Melbourne community, particularly um, from the living room perspective, because we provide almost um, case coordination for a lot of other services. So um, the, the profile and the cohort of people that access services at the living room, are, they're some very critically vulnerable people. Uh, and we also deal with people who are enduring some very significant mental illness. So um, I think that, you know, if we weren't there there, is kind of always you look through that lens as worst case, I think that there'd be some critically unwell people presenting in emergency departments almost on a daily basis. Um, but there would be even greater food insecurity, there'd be some hygiene issues because people haven't got access to showers and toilets, um, but there'd be some chronic health conditions that would ultimately um, mean that we would lose some lives. You know, our GPs and nurses are incredible talents um, and they work on picking up um, issues as quickly and as early as they possibly can. But we, as I said, we deal with some very complex and vulnerable people. I always go back to the economic argument. I don't think for this particular audience it's required, but it's always important for people to remember that, um, you know, if you can't convince someone through a social lens that what you do is having a critical impact, which we always can. Go the economic route. Mm. So the living room itself, even we stayed open completely during COVID. Like we couldn't shut down. There was no way we could do that to people. Um, and we'll do about 23,000 contacts in that service this year. Um, so you just take a very, very simple calculation on the economic impact and we're delivering services at $48 a contact. Now, you know, you would assume that a percentage of those are um, preventing an emergency department presentation. And in Victoria, an emergency department presentation starts at $490 pre-admission, admissions at 900 plus. Yeah. So not only is the work that we're doing making social sense, making health sense, it also makes economic
1: sense. Mm. It's quite overwhelming numbers. Yeah. Like just as you're talking, I'm processing 23,000 contacts a mm-hmm. year the amount of money that it, the smaller amount of money that it takes per head to service somebody versus it. Like, I don't think that I've ever really, uh, it's really bad, probably shows my privilege, but thought about what it would cost to go to ED in terms of like, an, like you put it, an economic value.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and then the effect that that's then having, because what I'm assuming is that the people that access your service are aware of the different services, particularly the health service that you provide. Yes. And then what would essentially... Intentionally not go to ED knowing that they're going to get a service from a doctor or a nurse, I'm assuming, That's right. any day of the week.
3: Exactly, yeah. 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 Six days a week in service and seven days on outreach.
1: Yeah. Also
2: would completely remove the stigma of, you know, often um, vulnerable people will present to ED with something like an issue because they've used substances. Yes. And the way in which they're treated... At ED or at the hospital, as opposed to how they'd be treated at the living room, would be vastly different.
3: Completely different. And with all due respect to emergency department staff of all levels mm-hmm. and all ranges of qualifications, I think they do a great job, but there is a complete lack of training and yep. professional development around dealing with people enduring significant mental illness or who are substance affected. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I think I've uh, over the last six months I've spent an incredible amount of time working on the floor because that's just what was needed of us um, and the the advocacy that our team have had to submit to get people treated properly and supported in emergency departments has been woeful at yeah. best and we've got a great deal um, of work to do to support hospital staff Mm -hmm. to treat people fairly and with no judgment and with dignity
2: yeah absolutely and i quite similarly i've experienced that taking clients having to take clients to ed before and there was actually like there's a specific situation Mm -hmm. i'm thinking of in which the doctors and the nurses were horrendously inappropriate um, and just thought, because I look quite young, so I was sitting with my client. They just assumed that we were friends or whatever. Yes. And so eventually, after we'd been there for, oh, it would have been over two hours, they said, sorry, who are you? Yeah. I said, uh, oh, actually, I'm her drug and alcohol worker. And the tune changed yeah, straight, away straight away because away. there was another responsible adult in the room. And it wasn't, you know, just her word against their word. And then the way in which they addressed the young person and like, it just completely flipped around and changed. And I thought, how? fucking horrible is that? Mm. that that's how our young people are treated every time that they come here. And the only reason you're behaving yourself is because there's another professional in the room. That's so inappropriate.
3: It really is. I mean, I found myself in the early days, so kind of going back to pre-COVID, I literally just landed, I think I landed back on the 2nd of March, 20 Mm. days later in lockdown. Mm -hmm. Um, Long story short, I was on a study tour. I went to Stanford, which was incredible, um, to do a social entrepreneurship kind of executive ed program. And then toured around the US and I came back and I was thinking, you know, their emergency department versus their, our emergency department—that kind of debate between Australia and America and whatnot. Mm. But you know, to present to an emergency department in America, you know, you've got to have insurance. If you don't have insurance, you can get all these bills. And we were talking to this woman who, you know, ended up having triplets, and her her bill was like a million dollars per mm. kit. Bro, right? mm-hmm. uh, And the way that they're treated at ED was terrible. So what happens is we look through an international lens and go, well, that's what's happening over there. Look how amazing it is here. And then we accept it. Um, and that's not the way to go. It yeah. stops um, the ability to raise aspirations. Yeah. So sometimes I feel like oh, our health sector is funded and everyone's got Medicare and everyone's going to be fine. And, um, you know, if something goes wrong, you'll be treated, you know, like everybody else. Um, one, that's not the case. The private health system is incredibly different to the public health system. If you pay and you've got a credit card, you're treated very, very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but two, we should never benchmark ourselves against poor performing nations. Yeah. You know, like that's just not the way that we should do things. We should raise aspirations, raise hopes and make sure that we treat everybody
0: equally. Mm. Mm.
2: It's actually funny that you mentioned the States. I actually got really excited because I thought you were going to say it's something else then, but we'll <laughs> come back to that. Um, but the state that's actually a really big thing on TikTok of all places at the moment is women or men coming on and explaining their sort of birth journey yes and how much they have to pay and there's so many people from australia being like uh well i went to hospital and i had a child and i had to pay zero dollars and it's like look how good we are and it's like well actually just because we don't have to pay like we have medicare yes and that's really great and, and they don't have free health care and i heartedly acknowledge that that does suck for them Doesn't mean we're perfect though. No, that's right. It's really interesting. It's not something that I've often thought of because you only really see like healthcare stuff like online. Like I see it from Shameless all the time. Frank like trying to do dodges to get his bills paid and all that sort of stuff. It's not something that I thought of, I guess, probably like real time or Mm -hmm. real life scenario until it started coming up on TikTok all the time. And that's a bad habit I've picked up through COVID. But yeah, it's (laughs) really interesting. There was one woman similar had triplets and one of them had to go to like the NICU and she had like $4 million worth of yeah, health wow. debt. And it's I was incredible. Like, oh, here I am thinking about buying a house and being like, shit, that's a lot of money. Like she's just gone to have some kids. Yeah. That's wild. But yeah, you're right. We can't benchmark that just because we have free health care that everything's dandy. That's right. Because it's
3: not. It, no, it is not.
2: No. You. I wanted to ask. Okay. You travelled to, I was reading an article that um, you I believe you wrote it. Um, on we'll see.
0: <laughs> it, it,
3: it could have been my comms <laughs> guy, but I'm hoping it's me. Was Let's it, see. Was Imagine it a good a Completely different person
2: <laughs> I what it said. But, um, no, it was it's actually yeah. It was around over the overdose awareness day. Oh yes. Um, and spoke about your trips overseas, looking at other sort of yeah. um, countries and what they changed. Um, in particular, there was a place in Portugal you went. I can't remember.
3: Yeah, so one. I went to the organisation of skating, but I was in Porto.
2: Yes. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about, because I don't think pe- many people know about sort of the difference of, you know, it's very easy in-house to be like, oh, are we going to, you know, decriminalise drugs here? What are we going to sure. do? What's the political agenda here? But there's places in the world that are doing fucking bang on things.
3: Yes, there and are. And I
2: think a lot of that was brought to light with um, Johan, with Chasing the Screen. Yep. But isn't, that it was sort of raised when when that came out and
0: then it's sort of just like...
3: Yeah, look, we are at an incredibly pivotal moment in the harm reduction movement in Australia. Uh, I mean, we have two safe injecting rooms, one in Sydney, it's been around for 20 years, incredibly Mm -hmm. successful. We have one at North Richmond, incredibly successful, early teething issues, we get it. Melbourne will announce its second safe injecting room soon, once all the players get around the table. Um, But that particular piece I wrote um, off the back of attending the Harm Reduction International Conference in Portugal. Portugal decriminalised drugs 20 years ago, some absolutely great policies, some great impacts for people there. But interestingly enough, they didn't have any safe injecting or consumption rooms. So particularly um, interesting was just the people from around the globe coming together and what stages they were at. So we had... Um, You know, Australia's fairly progressive around alcohol and drug supports and harm reduction, but we really, we didn't have North Richmond then. Um, Well, no, we just got North Richmond, I think. Then you had the North American kind of movement. You know, Canada had like 30 centres. There was two in each province and it was incredible. I met some amazing people there. Uh, And then you had a few Europeans that were kind of trialling some safe injecting mobile booths. And, you know, so it was really interesting. Then you go and talk to the Africans and they were like, what? Like we don't have any of this. We still don't even hand out clean needles. So it was a really interesting environment uh, and at the same time, we had just launched a new initiative here in Melbourne around proactive overdose response. Yeah. Uh, so basically getting um, Narcan or Naloxone and then later on Nioxoid, the spray, mm. um, into the hands of injecting drug users and their families and friends. So I'm really passionate about this particular movement. And you'll have to stop me because I could talk forever. But I wrote the article. have to stop us. <laughs> yeah. I wrote the article um, and penned the article from, from my own perspective. So when I was um, quite young, um, at about 12, my parents separated my dad became a heroin addict um, and that was an incredibly challenging time in my life because i just never heard of heroin. Mm. I didn't know what addiction was. I didn't, my dad didn't drink. I mean, he smoked. But I just hadn't experienced anything like that. So he was um, on and off the gear for a couple of years. And although my parents had split, my mum had become incredibly sick at the same time. So she was dying from cancer. So we're still trying to rely on this guy that was kind of just going through his own mental health issues, his own battles, uh, and an opioid addiction. Mm. Um, it was about four grand a day back then. So, I kind of had this, I was anchored in some history and legacy, and then I found myself in this movement. And I had, you know, we'd had friends that had, had some issues and whatnot. So, what I, um, what I really did was commit myself to the cause and understand that you have to see beyond the addiction and that we need to see the trauma that people have suffered leading up to that addiction and understand that they're still humans and they're still people and we have to save them. Like, we have to keep them alive, right? The number one thing that the harm reduction movement um, is about is that people deserve to live. So we can talk about dignified responses and no judgment. Let's just anchor ourselves in the fact that people deserve to live, no matter what drugs they take. So that's kind of where I came from with that particular article. Uh, And we've campaigned hard. We've campaigned hard since then to get more safe injecting rooms, more clean needles, more clean equipment out there, but also access to treatment and education. So we're not just about promoting drug use. That's not who we are. Mm. um, But we do it in a way that we try and get people to understand that there is a different life for them if that's something that they'd like to choose. Uh, most recently, the campaign has led to the potential rescheduling of naloxone. So at the moment, you know, we have to get um, Narcan through a chemist and get the script and get the person there. It's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Um, but last year we handed out 250 something um, doses of naloxone and we had 47 overdose reversals reported back. That's 47 people that were going to die if our clients hadn't had that on them. So once that's rescheduled, we'll be very, very happy. Mm. Um, I think that we need to make a bit of a song and dance about the fact that the Harm Reduction International Conference next year is coming to Melbourne, which is really exciting. Yeah, so it hasn't been here for quite a a number of years, maybe 15, 20 years, and it's coming to Melbourne, which means the world's most preeminent people in harm reduction are here. Wow. They're here in Australia. So we've got to use that as an opportunity to really kind of promote the movement uh, and promote supports for people who are um, injecting drugs or taking other substances and making sure that we see them in a really dignified space.
1: Mm, absolutely. Opportunity to educate, including myself. So to slowly your conversation down, and yeah. I'm totally happy you're having it because this is how it goes sometimes. I'll be like interviewing <laughs> yes. the shit out of someone and Nat times in and today I'm sitting back and that's totally cool with Sorry. me. No, no, it's, it's great. I love it. But I think uh, if you could take a step back and explain, because I've heard of Narcan, yep. mm-hmm. uh, but I haven't heard of the- na- Naloxone. Naloxone. Um, and kind of explain the the, the the purpose of those medications for people.
3: Look, and I really appreciate that you have slowed us down because this will be, I'm really passionate Mm. about it and I talk quite quickly. And a lot of my (laughs) friends actually say in a social setting, hold on, just can you just stop and just Mm. stop talking in Mm. sector acronyms and tell us what this shit means. I'm like, okay, so thank you, Josh. So um, Narcan, Naloxone, same thing. Um, Naloxone, um, the basis of Naloxone really is an opioid antagonist. So basically what that means is, if you're able to inject someone, um, or I'll talk about the products in a second, if you're able to get naloxone into somebody's system while they're experiencing an overdose, basically it attacks the opioid um, and relinquishes the person of um, the effects, which basically it's shutting down its central nervous system and its body. So um, naloxone goes in, person's ability to come out of that and breathe. Mm-hmm. Ultimate challenge. They also end their high right there and start mm. withdrawing. So we'll come back to that maybe another day. But there, there's one issue we have to fix. And um, An
1: analogy for people who maybe are still following along at home. Yep. Probably not dissimilar to the idea of an EpiPen. Yes, for correct. someone having an anaphylactic analogy. reaction. Well, well done.
3: Well done. Great analogy. Great. And you know you Thanks can you literally to be educated and trained in dispensing and using naloxone, so actually injecting it is a fifteen minute training session. I'm not kidding you. Like there, there's like hours of pack. but we could train you in 15 minutes and you can save a life yeah Um, but it's modernized so now it's turned into a nasal spray there's nyxoid my team's gonna kill me for that nyxoid nyxoid google it n-y-x-o-i-d and it's a nasal spray so you now no longer have to get the syringe out the vial and get it all ready and stab it into someone's arm or leg you can literally just administer it through a nasal spray and it brings a person back immediately Mm. which is pretty incredible stuff
1: Um, you know So when you talked before about the um, the importance around educating friends and family, and that's where it is, is that you need that second person. That's right. To be able to access that uh, medicine and then um, give it. I don't know what exactly. what, What do you call it? Administer? administer. Yeah, yeah administer. It. Yeah, well done. Administer I'm really that. proud I yeah. got there. Yeah, yeah, so
3: a really another good opportunity to for people to understand that a, um, a majority of people who die of overdose are, are dying alone yeah. or with people who are using at the same time that aren't cognizant of the fact that this person's overdosing. So what we always try and do is to um, educate people who do use drugs to not use alone or use in a semi-public space, mm. um, and have people that they can you know call on. Um, I think that every single Australian should carry an opioid um, antagonist, whether it be the spray or um, the violin um, and the syringe. I carry one. There's one in my house. There's one in every office um, because it's important that we have access to it. We, we notice overdoses all the time. It's mm. like you know, 1,000 people die, die a year or something. So, yeah, I think there's a great deal of work that we can do in that space. So it's very confronting for people. Mm. And what happens is it becomes a political issue. And remembering Australia is still a fairly conservative country, right? Like it's built on some fairly conservative roots. Mm. So it becomes a political issue and we see it as a criminal issue as opposed to a health issue. I mean, addiction is a health issue. It's not a criminal matter. We've made it a criminal matter. Mm. Um, So again, another opportunity, let's decriminalise small amounts of drug possession and drug use and get people the health support that they need. The research and evidence coming out of Portugal is incredible. You know, the the number of people that get access to um, treatment and support that didn't beforehand mm. um, is phenomenal. It's brilliant. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. It's been a long day, but check it out. It's pretty cool.
2: It's huge. And I think even the, the statistics of reintegration into society, not yes. only as just the, a, a community member, but in education, employment, it's astronomical, Their figures. Like I remember the first time reading in Chase the Scream and I, I work in the field and I was like...
0: <laughs> Wow.
2: Are you fucking sure? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's just,
2: is it too good to be true? I don't know. But it's the what they've done over there is amazing. And obviously other places as well are, are following oh. suits and, and putting things in place.
1: It's pretty incredible. Ben, you've touched on a little bit about um, your recent experience working with youth projects and a little bit about your dad. Where did the, the idea of working in the youth and community space start for you?
3: Sure. I, I think it definitely wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, I mean growing up i kind of had this feeling my mum really kind of put a lot of pressure on us early days to make sure we went to university Mm. both my parents didn't go to university my mum was you know a teenage pregnancy story she had her first child at 16 me at 19 my little sister at 21. Um, so growing up i was kind of like i'm going to get into law and i'm going to be better than this housing commission estate that i grew up in Um, and then shit changed like you know dad left mum died when i was 16 and we were three teenagers kind of fending for ourselves Ah. Um, and i thank my sisters i mean my older sister Mm. was studying accounting at the time she was the first one second one out of our family to get into university Um, And I was actually working with a counsellor at school, wonderful, wonderful woman um, named Jane Dennis, my first mentor. And I was really interested in um, Indonesia. We're studying Indonesian language. It was a really kind of cool escape for me that I could get over there one day and maybe do some work. Long story short, I'd started to go off the kind of um, rails, I suppose. Do they still say that? Go yeah. off the rails. Well, Wayward the teenager. Age, yeah. <laughs> Shows my age now. Um, and I, I was definitely one of the kids that would come to youth projects. So I kind of started to demonstrate some behaviors. I was never this eloquent. I was like mm. fucking around. Like I was really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I was really clever. So. Um, I was kind of like umming and ahhing whether I'd finish year 12 and I left six weeks in. I was like, I'm not doing this. We need to earn money. I don't want to do any of this. And I kind of looked down on other people. I was like, you haven't lived. Your parents are not dead drug addicts. So I kind of was a bit angry at the world. Anyway, um, 2002, um, Bali bombings happened. Mm-hmm. And we started to hear the kind of stories that came out of there. And long story short, my mentor and school counsellor um, shared a passion. She used to go to Bali all the time. And we got together and came up with a, an idea to actually go to Bali and start our own project. Um, So basically what we did was, um, through a kind of fundraising lens, we worked with schools because what we realised in O2 when the bombings happened was that most of the Balinese education system is actually private. So the government funds a building and maybe the headmaster and a teacher, but the families have to pay every month to keep their kids going there. Wow. Tourism stops, Bali goes under, kids stop being educated, crazy shit happens, like not nice wow. stuff. So yeah, we raised some money, I worked on it for two years, we ended up developing 26 partnerships uh, and I started youth work at TOEF locally at Chisholm. It was amazing. It started my career and then I found my space and I was like, okay, I've got my life together. Um, you know, I had to kind of stabilised some pretty crazy behaviors and started working and started studying. And I was like, this is where I'm meant to be. I'm meant to share my experience, my lived experience Um honestly and earnestly and help other people, but not helping. I was never the kind of like, I'm going to help you be better. I was like, I just want to share and um, articulate my own suffering and trauma to be able to help others. It was kind of where I headed. So I did that and then um, we felt pregnant. My my first wife, um, I was 20 when my son came. Shit myself, but it was a wonderful experience. We got married, um, so we come home and worked as a youth worker for a number of years. And I went into kind of employment and training and kind of that field because um, I kept getting promoted. I don't know why, maybe I was good <laughs> at it. I was good, but I had this kind of natural business acumen that yeah. lent itself really well to the social economy and the social sector. So I was able to kind of bridge those two together. And um, ultimately, I spent seven and a half years at Skills Plus and Brace. Uh, I was the general manager there for a a number of years and really my role was to kind of run the operations but I was seeing huge opportunities to raise um, people basically out of poverty. Like we were working with Doveton College here uh, and we ran all of the adult English programs, getting mums, you know, back into English language lessons while their kids were in primary. We started up NDIS. We were changing lives. Anyway, I was there for seven and a half years, the last two as CEO. Um, and I was kind of done you know seven and a half years with an organization it had matured it had evolved the talent was incredible um, and would help thousands of people and a friend of mine sent me the job ad for youth projects and I was like I've not gone for a job in years it kind of just my career just kind of progressed as it did and then I started researching and I started looking and, and looking at the people on the board and where they'd come from and I was like no 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 no, no. They, they need me and I need them um, so yeah I applied and The rest is history, three and a half years I've been there and I absolutely love, love, love this organisation and what we do. Um, And I think that the board of directors and myself have found a really good, happy place around what constructive governance and organisational leadership looks like. And because I'm trusted, um, you know, ultimately a board's biggest decision in this sector is to appoint their CEO. I am I act on their behalf. Yeah. So we've found this really kind of meaty, strong relationship around vision, values and purpose. Um, and the hands off, like they're really good at governance, they're really good at guidance, they're really good at strategy, uh, and they let me do my thing. Okay. And we've been able to do some pretty cool stuff in the last three and a half years and hopefully another three and a half more. Is that you? Your point, another three and a half years. No, 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 I don't like to put a deadline on it. <laughs>
2: You're not going to
3: get the seven <laughs> no. year in. Well, look, I, I kind of said to myself, this is like a 10 year, um, yeah. a, a 10 year job because we had to kind of do, you know, most organisations need to be refreshed and we're a new brand, a new vision and a new strategy. But, you know, the purpose and the sovereignty was definitely there. So I kind of see it as a 10 year thing, um, but personally as well. Um, you know, my kids will then kind of be finished VCE and maybe off to uni or a trade or whatever and I can kind of reassess. But you never know. Someone could come along tomorrow and say, look, you know, I need you to do the X, Y, Z or my pool may change. But for now, I'm really comfortable leading the charge at youth projects and and I feel like they need me. There's Mm. like a sense of not necessarily urgent need, but a necessity um, based on my leadership skills to get them through this particular part of their journey.
2: Mm. And you touched on it before. It's actually really nice just to watch you talk about Something that you're evidently so passionate about, and you touched on before that you're politically minded, and you're doing, you've got your fingers in lots of different pies and yeah. all of that stuff. Um, for you, do you do you think personally that you mix well between those? Because we we're talking before, you know, being sort of a frontline worker is different to being a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, For you, it sounds like you've got like a thousand different things on the go. Sure. And I'm sure you're nailing them. But how do you find sort of your personality fits within all of those?
3: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I do different things for different reasons and I never um, give more than I've got. So, I'm not exhausted. I am incredibly busy as most people are, but I work to my capacity and that's, kind of how my brain functions mm. like if there's an hour in the day that I'm not doing something I'm finding something yeah. like my partner was say to me no 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 no, no more you can't take that on um, so in terms of the politics I mean I'm socially progressive yeah. uh, and I definitely call out the fact that I'm a moderate who leans to the left mm-hmm. I definitely am socially progressive leaning to the left on anything to do with the well-being of Australians um, but I am economically conservative and I'm really open and honest about that and I think being able to balance the two has been interesting. Interesting because I definitely have a lot of friends that sit on the right, and my family kind of comes from the right. Um, but I have most of my friends that sit on the left now. Um, and I find policy interesting. I don't find politics, politics. interesting. Right. Um, I would literally, um, I, I would go off if there was some sort of debate I'd be like no that's incorrect and that is not factual and this is the fact and I know my stats and I think you probably can already understand that I know my numbers like I know how things work so I think that I'd probably get lost and get in a heated debate and swear and yell and scream and I'd never make a great politician but I like to be able to bring different arguments to the table and understand what compromise actually looks like because Mm -hmm. that's how you run a country you actually have to compromise both sides Um, so I'm very um, vocal on matters that count to Australians, yeah. you know, whether it be health policy, social justice policy, particularly employment policy, um, and I do my best to lend policy advice to as many politicians that will listen to me, mm-hmm. um, and if they don't listen, then I just play a more active role in the policy making itself, or I just, you know, if I don't like the way that things are run, I'll just go and run for the position. So that's kind of why I'm fearful about getting into politics, because I'm like, yeah. school council president came about because it's, it seems like this tedious little tiny job, it's not. I literally was vice president for eight years. And I'm like, I'm just sitting there, going to meetings, it's fantastic. And the whole idea was that, I can't get there, and um, I can't get there during the day. I'm a busy man, so I'm not going to be able to do working bees and help kids learn how to read and stuff. And that also doesn't interest me. Yeah. So, I'm like, I'll get on school council. I'm good at governance, um, but then I was like, oh no, 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 this is going to need to be tidied up, and this is going to need to, you know, this is going to need to happen. And then last year, the president retired, and they were like, oh, would you like to do it? And I was like, my daughter's going into grade five. I can do this for two years. Let's do it. And the principal retired, and I was ah. like, you bitch, Mm. because it's my job to replace her. I didn't know that. I thought the department (laughs) would just step in and they're like, here's your new principal. I'm like, great, we'll work with them. That'll be fine. like, no, I had to run the whole thing. So here's like me liaising with the department during COVID on zoom zooming interviews with you know all of these candidates who i did not like not one of them <laughs> did you just
1: decide to be the principal yeah i did i <laughs> actually
3: announced to her like at a school councilman like, I'm, I'm just i'm just going to do it i reckon i've got the hours in the day let's do it let's give it a go <laughs> no education qualification no disrespect to teachers out there well
2: i was gonna say there's that guy that um we were talking about him not that long ago that he was a pretty sort of he was the principal maybe i'm butchering this. Don't fact check me, but was the principal <laughs> at a really well to do school and he's just been found out that he doesn't have a Doesn't have the qualification. Yep. And He'd he used like a family member's or someone else's job oh, wow. for like 30 something years.
1: Yeah. Ah, it wasn't Tell me you were having the conversation with? I swear Nah, it was. that's awesome. Did he do a good job?
2: Well, I t- so I swear we were talking about it, <laughs> and then, it and then I was talking about it with my partner and, and their friends and, and Pete actually said, well, I mean, if he's been doing it for 35 years, fucking surely you're just like, eh, hey, you can do the job by now. But,
1: not the point <laughs> yeah he wasn't like a pedophile or anything no no no, no i don't okay. believe so oh, i don't believe I'm there was like yeah, Mary, sorry. oh my god no because if i didn't realize no no i am not trying to be rude but i'm just if i didn't realize that's how the story ended then my joke yes. was yes okay inappropriate. right because <laughs> yeah okay yeah that's what i <laughs> yeah. was clarifying no not that's that i know all. of i think yeah. they
2: just did like the um similar to how we all aligned with like the um my gov that like amalgamated us and centrelink right. because people got fines for being overpaid that actually were just wrong thanks centrelink um but it similar to that they were doing something to do with people's qualifications and updating systems or whatever and yeah found Easily he's just, it he's just was it a- I'm going to find it. I'll it's crazy stuff. It
3: in. does lead me to a, just a very brief opportunity to talk about education though because yeah. I know we're talking about politics. Yeah. So maybe one day I'll run. Like I'm just going to leave that open. I think yeah. I've got a seat in mind. I've run the numbers, but I'll go as an independent. We'll come back to it. But education itself, this guy that was the principal, you know, what I'm more interested in is what is learnt in the 35 years after university. So I think university is a great pathway for people and we should definitely invest in getting people sort of clinically or trade-based qualified Mm. but I'm not interested at 35 as to what you did at university I'm interested that you continue to self-educate throughout the next 15 or 20 years Mm. and I think that's really important my son said to me recently why do you talk about university being or TAFE or whatever it is that he wants to do being the best opportunity I'm like "No, no 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 I don't care where you go what I want you to be is educated because if you start an educated profession, you're continually educated. And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, I'll give you an example. If you're a teacher, you had to go to university and get your four years. I reckon, you know, at the end of the four years, you've learned something about curriculum management and student behaviors. But I'll tell you what happens. Because you're in a qualified essential service, you're the first person to be educated when the world evolves. And he's like, I'm still not following you. <clears throat> Teachers are the first people to be taught about transgender rights right they're the first profession because you're educated and you're qualified and you influence the community you need to be educated aboriginal rights women's rights whatever it might be so i just constantly say to young people as much as um you don't like education or the setting might not work for you just keep going because if you're in an educated position you'll continue to educate yourself and Mm. become socially progressive and I think that's really powerful there's always going to be a right-wing nut job you know someone at the AMA is going to come out and be like don't let trans kids have gender reassignment or whatever there's always going to be a nut job Mm. but a majority of educated people are also socially progressive in this country because they're educated and they understand that's how we evolve as a species Mm.
2: another tangent
3: that I've gone off on but
2: no, no, I love, I love tangents. That's exactly why we're here. I was trying to find the article, but it just kept coming up with articles about, do you want to be a teacher?
0: And <laughs> no, no. thank you.
2: I couldn't do it. Was, we had um, another person on the podcast, and she was talking about presenting to all of these kids, and I literally was like, I just think high school kids are terrorists. I've got no interest. Just <clears> get the fuck out of me. Yeah. <laughs> Give me any other kid, kind of kid, any day, I can't school kids. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I have a giant aversion to them. Um, I was going to ask, you'd, you You said we'd get to that later after we just had that chat about um, education. Your, um, sorry, not your, moving forward, post-COVID policy rollouts, where do you think we're going in <clears> regards <throat> to There's just been a shit tonne of funding allocated yep. um, for, for, for different things, but including care up to the age of um,
3: 21. 21, brilliant.
2: Yep. Yeah. Um so what are your thoughts on some of the new sort of budget stuff that's come out but also like policy moving forward considering that covid has been a significant fuck about really
3: yeah so this is <laughs> this is literally how i feel i feel like This is. I hope this comes across the right way, but I feel like the kid leading up to Christmas asking for the really expensive MacBook Mm. and what I got was like a $250 buy, swap and sell 10-year-old Lenovo. So I'm like, I'm happy I got something, but I didn't get what I wanted and I'll tell you why. So there was some really cool policy announcement, raising the age of funding for kids in out-of-home care up to 21, love, brilliant, fantastic, finally. Great. Mm. Well done, by the way, to all of the crossbenchers who argued for it. Fiona Patton, she's getting a shout-out. She needs it and deserves it. Mm -hmm. Not that I vote reason. She did the hard work and she needs to be... um Acknowledge for that. Mm. The social housing build, yeah, come on, I've got some questions, right? $5.3 billion, love it. I work in the homelessness sector, I get it. So 12,000 you know, social and affordable houses, blah, 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 whatever it might be. There's 100,000 people on the public waiting list right now in Victoria for housing. Mm. And most of the $5.3 billion is um, repurposing some old public housing yeah. and investing in social and community housing and no real new public housing. So when you wade through the policy documents, people need to understand that I'm so happy with the Andrews government and that they've been socially progressive and they're going to invest this money. Mm. But one, it's it's not quick enough. We yeah. need shovel-ready projects now and we need a bigger investment in public housing. Mm. The challenge with community housing, and I appreciate all of my community housing partners, is that um, it becomes almost privatised mm. and rights become less... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? At the forefront of the community housing agency's mind because what they're looking at is their profit and loss and their balance sheet. Mm. So if you're not paying rent on time, we're not necessarily looking at what's happening with that person's life. We're looking at having to pay the rent. And the government's not going to back you on that. They've already given you the property. They've set you up. So I think public housing should be the investment that we should be making and that we should be investing um, in state-owned properties, not necessarily community-managed properties. I think community housing providers have a, a great role to play in this space and in this sector, particularly for people who are, who are um, kind of on the precipice of homelessness. So they're, yeah. they're enduring significant rental stress you know, they've got an eviction notices. Let's get those people into social and community housing. Let's get the most critically complex and vulnerable people into public housing and stabilise them. Yeah. Any housing first model across the world, particularly the one in Finland that we've all spoken about, mm. works because people are offered a house no matter what. Yeah. You, you, we don't come in and say, oh, look, do you would you like a house? And the person experiencing homelessness says yes. And they say, okay, well, here's the keys. Let's go. Let's go and get you in the house. Then when you get in there, they're like, oh, you know, do you have maybe some drug and alcohol issues or maybe there's some undiagnosed mental illness? And the person opens up and they work together. Yeah. Here in Australia, it's like before you even get the housing application in, do you suffer mental illness? Do you have alcohol and drug problems? Blah, blah, blah. Do you have a criminal record? Blah. We ask them all these questions and then nine times out of ten, they don't get long-term good housing. Um, I just think it's it's backwards. Uh, this is not housing first. It is absolutely not housing first. And anyone that tries to brand it will have to deal with me. Mm-hmm. I congratulate the government for 5.3 billion dollars, but what I want to see is triple that. Yeah. And even as an economically conservative person, I can say that because of the money that it will reinvest back into our community—not yeah. just through jobs, not just through construction, but long-term. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a great deal more work that needs to be done. While I'm on policy, mm-hmm. let's just literally legalize marijuana. Like, let's just do that now, mm-hmm. right? The research is in. It needs to be done i mean there was a research paper that came out again today um, again giving a shout out to fiona around um the effects of thc and cannabis right and people who are on cbd oil Mm. most people listening will know what cbd oil is but it um it's an oil derived from marijuana helping people with like chronic pain and all these other issues basically the impact of thc is negated after four hours Mm. so what we now need to do is change the legislation so people who take cbd oil are allowed to drive because at the moment it can be up in your system for what, like up to 28 days or something? No one knows. So I think that we just need to decriminalize it. Let's just get rid of it. Let's just make sure that people don't drive or do anything crazy while they're high. Like, let's acknowledge that. Let's put some parameters around it. But let's get CBD out there. Like, let's get um, people relieved of chronic pain and chronic illness and just make some more progressive policy adjustments. I don't want to talk about franking credits and fucking superannuation anymore. Like, that's boring. Mm. Let's talk about some real stuff that helps people today.
0: Mm.
2: And such a huge one. Like, I think that even the results around people with autoimmune diseases. Yes. And, you know, I've got friends that have autoimmune diseases that have either got a medical license now to use marijuana or have um, used CBD and found great benefits in it, but it's not easily accessible. And how many times do you, you know, unfortunately when there's a big thing like CBD, there might be one credible person online, but there might be 48,000 dodgy motherfuckers selling something (laughs) shit. And, you know, you've got to dredge through that and find the legit people and... I just think if we streamlined we'll it.
1: Mm. And it's funny that we, we seem to refer to North America a lot. With yeah. like We talked about yeah. like the hospital bills or um, even like some of their like uh, laws and things. Mm. But with something like um, legalising marijuana, which is a pretty hot topic, and they, I think it's legal in almost every state, and it's definitely illegal in the whole of Canada now, mm. but still not yep. really something that we're talking about here, mm. but would reduce a lot of like uh, issues within the community of, not only like the the demographic that we might work with but just like you said cbd and and things like that in general yeah Mm. yeah
3: i think it goes to the heart of australia right without getting too contentious but i think because you know when i talk about australia in age i acknowledge the fact that we have been around for many thousands of years but post colonization Mm. and post the land being stolen itself it's a 250 year lens that aussies look through like they Mm. don't look through the long-term lens so we look at this 250 year kind of context and then we compare ourselves against the world actually we've got an opportunity to be the leader in the world on almost everything like Mm. we're pretty socially progressive a little bit conservative but we've got a decent economy we've kind of we're not overpopulated just yet like we're in this really cool environment where we could be like let's just pick off the top 100 things that we know could change lives yeah and just do them now before anybody else does them and watch the world come to us Mm. uh instead we like to kind of play the poor cousin Mm. In a sense, and kind of wait for the rest of the world. Like, oh, wait till they do, or they've done it. We might look at it now. Mm. How about we actually take the lead and do something pretty cool? That's what I'd love to see Australia do.
1: Mm. Yeah, and it, it seems like an Australian kind of thing to do. Yeah, yeah. isn't it? Like, yeah. Which is the funny thing. That's and right. We've got New Zealand kind of stealing the thunder at the moment. We do kind mm. of leading that charge. Where I think stereotypically New Zealand might have followed Australia or or been like the the cousin, but everyone's like they're kind of leading the the charge in that respect. Yeah.
2: Yeah, particularly through COVID, there was a lot of lot of love for um, Jacinta and a lot of hate for Scott.
1: <laughs> yeah, and just the diversity and I guess like openness and I and it's been difficult if it's not been obvious for me to engage in some of the conversation today because I'm not very politically minded. And my right. cousin my cousin having me about that over over COVID because. Um, was it Jenny Mykonos who, who lost her yeah. position or no, Makarios? So, and say. she resigned. Yes. And I was like, "Who's that?" And she's like, "Josh." <laughs> and I was like, "I'm sorry. Like, it's not my strong point." But you know, the more, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, but the more that it's sort of becoming like, I'm trying to be more aware of it and trying to trying to be um, more thoughtful about sort of learning and educating myself in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, and today's brought that conversation sort of to the forefront again for me. Um, but even just listening to some sort of the stuff around um, Jacinda Ardern and the diversity in which she's put her cabinet together and the way she's handling things. And it's just been quite interesting um, mm. as someone who's kind of learning about um, politics. And yeah, unfortunately, a little never late than better late than never. But
3: yeah, yeah. I, I think the interesting thing, if I can there, particularly around Jacinda Ardern's leadership style, um, is that she's looking through a lens of lived experience. Mm. So it's not necessarily that she's promoting for diversity or tokenism. Mm. She's actually engaging and from what I can see, she's making appointments and decisions based on the experience of the people, mm. which I think is incredibly important. When I look to the new newly sworn in New Zealand cabinet, yeah. it's multi-party, multifaceted. There's people from all different walks of life there. And that really represents, truly represents who we are. Yeah. When I look to the Australian parliament, I don't see that. I see still a majority white people, like 99% white. Someone will (laughs) get that stat correctly. An over-representation of males. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still think that we've got a long way to go in terms of making sure that we are fairly represented in parliament, making sure that Indigenous people um, and treaties represented in parliament, we've still got a long way to go. And I think that it's a security thing. People like to kind of look up and be like, yeah. And no offence, by the way, I've said this earlier in the show and I'll say it now, but um, no offence to kind of middle-aged white men, but you're not the only people in the room. Like it's time to kind of step aside and let the people in the back have a turn. Mm. So I think as we evolve and we fight the system, um, and that's incredibly important too, then we'll see a fairer representation. One thing that I say to people when they kind of think about, you know, New Zealand's got diversity and they're amazing and Australia doesn't, I'm like, yeah, but our system is not broken. Our system's working exactly as it was designed and intended. Mm. It was built by the patriarchy for the patriarchy. It was to suppress indigenous people. It was built to suppress women. It was built to suppress queers. Anybody that was not white and male was literally, (laughs) the system wasn't built for you. So we've actually redesigning the system as we go. And as we evolve, you know, women got the vote and, Aboriginal people stopped having their children stolen from them, maybe still some issues there, let's be honest. Um, but you know, queers only got the right to get married, was it three years ago? Mm. And we still only won 61.5%. So That's like
2: fucking ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy, right? But, Sorry. So we're
3: happy, we're happy for it. People are like, you're always fighting. And I'm like, because we're not finished. Yeah. Like we're not we're finished never yet. Finished. Like until I see like a full parliament, you know, I want to see, I would love to see like a, a black, indigenous gay woman running this country like how incredible would that i will stand up and be like okay now I can take a breath yeah <laughs> now I can just sit back maybe you know sit in the backyard and have a beer and relax for a while but until that day happens no way mm. we're not there yet
1: did you want to cover off some of the COVID, like COVID conversation or do you feel like sort of we've touched on it sort of as we've gone
3: I think we've referenced it. I'm kind of over COVID, to be honest. I mean, my kind of view of COVID, I mean, I'm not over it. It's killed a lot of people and it's damaged the economy and, you know, Mm. it's it's been really, really challenging. But I'm kind of like, you know what? We need to be, we we shouldn't even be in recovery mode. We should be in optimization mode. What are we taking from COVID? And what are we leaving behind is what I'm interested in talking to people about. And particularly in our sector, and I keep referring it to the social economy. Anyone that's new to the sector, it's had lots of different names. Mm. And there's lots of micro sectors like Mm. alcohol and drugs and homelessness. And then there was the community services. I didn't like that. Um, I refer to it as the social economy so people actually understand how big we are and that Mm. it is an economy. But anyway... Um, I think COVID has given us an opportunity to work very differently. Mm-hmm. I think that hard work was recognised and rewarded too much pre-COVID in our sector. So the more you were up late entering case notes, the better you were. And that is bullshit. That's not how it works. People are more productive when they're happier. Yeah. So what I'm interested in with COVID is saying, well, let's think about the new way that we work. You know, our sector, the people experience so much vicarious trauma. What we need to do is focus on their well-being. Uh, and focus on how much we pay them and then focus on how, much, how we treat them. So I'll, like, I've been really open with my whole team, with our board, with everybody. We're not going back to the way that it was. And if I see you in the office 100% of the time, I'm going to sit down and be like, why do you need to be here? Mm. Like is there a reason why you need to be in the office? And if it's good for you and good for your family and good for your mental health, two thumbs up, keep doing what you're doing. Mm. But I can guarantee you I will not be doing that. No. I will not be doing that. I'll be doing maybe 50% in the office um, and meetings on the road and the rest of them doing it from home because i'm up the same time in the morning get up about 6 or six thirty, and my day finishes about the same time 7:30, 8 o'clock but my day looks so different my day looks incredibly different i get more time with my kids i get more time cooking i'm not spending as much money on food and stupid things i'm a lot clearer mm. um i get lots more thinking time and i'm thinking well if i'm not doing this commute and i'm feeling really good about myself and i'm exercising more and my well beings great Imagine what that means for the 120 people that work for me. Yeah, I'm like, let's, let We need to get around the table. Let's do this. Let's chat. Let's talk about what's going to work for you, uh, and let's just do that. Because mm. I think that's the incredible part of COVID is that we've learned that we don't need to sit on the Monash Freeway Ugh, every single the day. Car park. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's the worst. Uh, and and hard work is not to be rewarded anymore. Smart work should be rewarded.
1: Yeah, mm. that's such a good point. Yeah, because I was thinking about this the other day. Why is there, and I'm kind of battling this now, like you sort of touched on before, um, I have moved into a team leader position over the past 12 months. And a majority of that 12 months, obviously has been the COVID space. And it's been really difficult returning to the office because there's so many different aspects of working from the office that I'm like, why do we do this? Why do we do that? Like, And so far, I have to be careful. Mm. There's probably not a lot of conversation about, and it's early days maybe, and but I do agree with you, it's time to maybe start thinking about that now. But right now, as we speak, there's not a lot of conversation around what were we doing and can we do it better? Can we work smarter and not harder? And do we, and, and that we should be rewarding working smarter and not harder and glorifying like those, like you said, staying late, yeah. doing case notes late, writing an email at home. Um, because I was thinking about like, I've started running a lot recently And I realized that I could reflect that the reason I got a lot of running done was because what I would do is drop my kids off to whatever it was, the kinder or daycare, whatever they're doing that day. I'd come home for maybe like 8.30, run for an hour, have a shower, and I was ready to go for like a meeting that started maybe at 10 o'clock or i would shift that plan slightly to be ready for like most of our meetings start at 9.30. Very rarely are they starting at 9 but I would sacrifice a little bit of the start of my work day, but I would run for like an hour beforehand. How
3: cool is that? Yeah, Yeah.
1: where otherwise it would be dropping the kids off, coming to the office, be here at 8.45 and then my meeting would start at 10 and I kind of did work, of course, but it's time that I could have done. More effectively used. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah, and for your Mm. greater well-being, not just for the pay packet. So I think there's also got to be a disconnect between how much you get paid This is very controversial for any CEO at the moment. (laughs) There needs to be a disconnect between how much you get paid and the hours that you work. Mm -hmm. It should be around the responsibility and the portfolio of your role. Um, And again, you can feel free to edit this out, but if there is any organisation who is not having those conversations with their staff right now, you are way behind the eight ball, Mm. like you are months behind the eight ball. We've already changed our workplace flexibility policy. You can work any hours you want between 7 and 7. We don't care, you don't need to report that to us, it is what it is. We don't expect anybody to be working more than 50% back in the office, even right through to Q2 next year. So we don't have any expectations for people to be doing that because what we've assessed and we've been really clear about this, productivity is not linear. It's really challenging. And what we delivered during COVID is not what we're going to have to deliver into the future. So I get that. People are going to have to come back to work. We need the collegiate environment. We need service interaction. We need client and consumer support. But when I look at it, I'm like, well, we delivered pretty good results during COVID. And if you can do that over Zoom, then I'm pretty sure you don't need to be here full time. And that won't, that won't be happening, absolutely will not let it happen because I'm in a responsibility, a position of responsibility and influence, mm. I need to change that for the future. Having someone, I had this conversation with an employee recently and she was like, you know, I used to feel so bad, I had to run and get my, she's a single mum, she's a youth worker, I to get my kid to school and I have to do this and he's sick and i got my mum on the phone who's also single and she's sick and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. She's like, now I don't have to stress, everything's just kind of managed and it's fine because if I need to leave work early, I can or if I wanna go into work earlier, I can. And I was like, well, that's cool, do that then. Like, it's not rocket science, just do that. You're happier, you're getting the same results, if not better, and next year, I reckon that she'll perform even better. Mm. Like it's not happy. it's not tough stuff, it really isn't. And if CEOs in this sector, particularly the social economy, aren't thinking about how they improve their margin through a cost reduction and then pay people more and hire more staff, then again, they've missed their boat. Mm. Because what we've been able to analyse during COVID is not only will pro- productivity go up by having people with better wellbeing, but will actually save money. And Anyone says that post-COVID they haven't saved money if they haven't structured their business properly. hmm I'm happy to be challenged by anyone of any size. Mm. <laughs> I love it.
2: I love that. Yeah. I love that you mentioned, I love that you can tell that there's a there's been like, obviously a bit of a light bulb COVID working from home, but that you're really passionate about it. Mm. I'm really passionate about working from home, always have been, yep. um, and was really excited when I started working where I work now, because previously when I worked at corrections, that was never an option of to no. You couldn't work from home. It was always in the office in such a stressful environment it, it was getting in at work at some ungodly hour and doing case notes until seven o'clock at night and there's nothing productive so in that. that. it's so fucking toxic and i was actually talking to a friend of mine about it not too long ago um and we said leaving um certain workplaces is like leaving a toxic relationship yep. and you have to unlearn the negative habits that you sort of accumulate over the way over time and so when i started working where i work now and, and they were like oh yeah you can just work from home and i was like hmm. sorry yeah what do you mean? And I remember the first time I did it, I was like texting my team leader, like, I've started
0: work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm
2: happy lunch. And they were like, fuck off. But <laughs> we don't like we don't care what you're doing. But now doing it, how many staff have realized you didn't need to attend that meeting?
0: Nope. Or yeah.
2: it wasn't warranted for you to sit at court all day because what have you achieved?
3: That's right.
0: You
2: could have done it at home. And like this morning, perfect example, I was up and ready, did all my things that I wanted to do, and I was like, oh fuck, it's only seven thirty. What should I do? Oh, I'll bake my friend some gingerbread cookies because she yeah, loves them.
3: That's right, how much does it change your world? I yeah. think, look, I was at the start, I was like, I'm the CEO, right? And I've got this big balance sheet and profit and loss and all these people and everyone's relying on me. And I was like, these fuckers go home and do nothing. <laughs> I'm gonna look like an idiot. That's yeah. what I thought to myself. I was like, I'm gonna look like an absolute idiot because I've promoted all of this, stay home, it'll be fine, you can take care of your kids. And you know, even I was out going for a bit of a jog, it didn't last long. But I'm like, <laughs> as I started to get momentum, I started to check in with people. And I was like, is it working? Like, what? how are you going? And I've got a pretty good relationship with my frontline staff, but I'll be able to call them up and be like, seriously, how many hours did you do this week? Mm-hmm. And they would be really honest and be like, I don't know, 28, 30. Yep. And I'll be like, okay, that's pretty good. And the next week they are like 60 and I'm dead. You know, it was like it was kind of like they worked the workload required. Yeah. And I was like, no, 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 we're onto something here. This is going to be cool. If people can work the workload required and say, Ben, I'm happy to chuck in 50 or 60 hours this week because I had four court appearances and I had to do this and I had to do this. But next week, I'm not doing that. I'm doing 20. Yeah. You know, like it, it, there's a little bit more flexibility, that kind of 38-hour regimented thing mm. that doesn't exist anymore. And anybody that it does exist for don't work for them.
1: Mm. Do you think it's a trust thing?
3: Well, your performance, Josh, I mean, okay, let's look at this in a context as a team leader. So, your performance as a youth worker used to be determined by you and by your clients, Mm. right? As you go up the chain, it's determined by more people. So, your performance now is determined by all the people that report to you. And then the same for your manager. And I'm guessing that manager reports to an executive manager who reports to a CEO who reports to a board. So, there's now eight levels of hierarchy all intertwined and it's got nothing to do with you. It's all about productivity and performance and organizational hierarchy. So I think as you go up you're kinda of like, well, if they don't all we'll do as they're told, then because I've got a vision, we don't just land CEO jobs. We're generally visionaries and we're good at what we do and you know we can demonstrate some experience. But if you have the right structure and you have a sense of trust and confidence in your people and you're really open and honest with them, then they will follow, Mm. they will 100% follow. There's some people, I mean, I have 120 staff. Do I trust every single one of them? No, I don't know them well enough, I'm sure. There's probably 10% either side that I'll be like, you know what, that could fuck it up for the rest of us. Mm. But 90%, my relationship is built on purpose, openness, transparency, and they'll tell me if it's not working, they'll tell me. If they if they don't tell me, then I haven't done a very good job.
1: Yeah, and I'm picturing uh, like a like a um, visual. I'm mm. picturing that trust coming down, but also that there's a uh, um, culture within Youth Projects that I feel like you've put in place over the past three and a half years mm. that is then put arrows pointing back up the chain as well Definitely. and now you've got this cycle going yeah. which it's, I think is maybe not so common.
3: No and, and look I think it is challenged across the city lots of people want to think that they have it mm. um, but I can see that they don't. Mm. Um, we yeah. do I mean again we're not perfect but I think that the cycle of accountability is really clear yeah. um, and the ability to call out for help is really clear so I'll give you a really quick example. Um, I've stayed pretty close to the floor we're 120 staff we only turn over just a bit under 10 million a year so I kind of can mm. um, but I I've worked on the floor of our living room at least. At the start it was almost full-time, but I, I manage every Wednesday there, just so I can talk to people who are actually sleeping on the streets. Yeah. Um, and I jump in and watch people's workload. We've got some pretty cool tech stuff that we use. Like we've kind of, everything's online we all can instant message each other really quickly and groups have got all the little team sites, it's good. But basically I can see where the pain points are gonna be and where the weak points are. I know when everyone's got meetings, so I can kind of jump in and kind of test what's going out. And one of our senior leaders kind of dropped recently, she's got a family crisis, it's not good, it was all of a sudden and she's kind of gone, I've got to take time off. And everyone on that team is kind of incredibly busy. So her team leader has kind of had to step up. Um, And I was watching from afar for a few days and I was like, this guy's going to break and not because he can't do the job because the resources aren't there and there's too much on him. It's way too much. Um, And I called him and I was like, what would be one thing that could help you today? And he's like, we've got like 80 applications on SEEK. You know, like anyone just applies on SEEK. He's like, I need a really good youth worker. Can you find me one? I was like done within half an hour but for him it was like that would take him a day yeah. getting to see he hasn't used a login before he would have to call HR you know all those little shitty things. Mm. and I was like bitch please I can get this done in half an hour this is like my bread and butter in bang three interviews done mm. that's our culture like let's just get it done work together doesn't matter who's who just mm. jump in and get it done
2: and I love that it's not no I'm the CEO I'm not going to be on the floor <laughs> doing
0: that no. which is such yeah. a fucking
2: wanky statement within itself but It's so true. Like I've seen people that work with us and they'll see like my manager go and do an AOD assessment and they're like, is the Mm. manager doing an
0: AOD assessment? And I'm
2: like, yeah, because she's no better than any of us. And Mm. that's been a very clear sort of messaging from all of us all the way through. Mm. And you're right, it does create a culture. It creates a culture where people feel safe and connected and, you know, there's no sort of power imbalances or, um, you know, there's always a hierarchy. There has to be a hierarchy. I think that's an integral part of how things function. But how you create a culture around that hierarchy is really integral.
3: It really is. agree. Mm. Couldn't agree more.
1: Mm. I feel like you've kind of created a a youth or community space uh, um, kind of uh, environment with a Google lens yeah that's yeah. what
3: it kind of sounds like. like. A modern day take on yes. how to run yes. a social organisation. I exactly would hope I mean. so. Yeah.
1: I was going to say Apple, but then I remember that, every, that there was like a narrative that Steve Jobs was a bit of a prick. Yeah. So I, yeah. D- I changed it from Apple and, and I hope Took that Google. the CEO of Google is think- pretty fun. Google's
2: the one that's got a slide in the middle of their yeah. office. Yeah. yeah, yeah
1: <laughs> you yeah. have a slide yeah. in the middle of your office? No, but Can we,
2: we have slide? some
3: pretty cool stuff. We do have wellbeing spaces. Yeah. Um, we definitely have no COVID chat zones. Um, oh. we have-
2: Josh would love that because he hates it.
3: Yeah. We have definite spaces for everyone to kind that. of fully function and participate um, but yeah look I, I definitely I mean look I definitely don't think that I'm anywhere near as good as the leaders of Google or Apple yeah. but what I do say to myself every single day is like have one-shot I don't believe in another life this is it this is my opportunity mm-hmm. I'm going to do something with it while I'm here and my performance and my productivity is completely determined by those 120 people and the 25,000 people we support so I get that right everything else should be good and i should set a precedent for anybody else that's watching you can do it right you can pay people more you can do things flexibly it's just hard and change is hard
1: Do you want 122 people underneath you? Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> I w- we would love both of you. It seems like we would definitely take you on. I think we're, g- we're growing rapidly, but I won't publicly start recruiting.
1: People are going to be like, What was that? Go- what was the, uh, the CCAT he was talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Message yeah. us. Is it still available? Look, we want to work there.
3: If there's an opportunity, we literally have eight roles currently live. Like we're growing rapidly. We've put yeah. on 27 new headcounts since the start of COVID. We've oh, grown our wow. revenue by almost 24%. We've taken on a lot of new revenue. Uh, and we're looking, we need dual diagnosis counsellors, we need youth workers, we need employment coaches, we need nurses. Uh, we've got a really strong, robust foundation of a team, but we're adding all the time. Mm-hmm. And we're winning and securing new bids and contracts pretty much on a quarterly basis. So wow. definitely if anyone out there, look at Youth Project's website, we're definitely looking for staff.
1: It's great to know. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm a little bit in awe, if I'm honest with you. Yeah. Like I'm a little bit... Taken aback from, from you. Oh, that's very so, kind. I hope no, in a good way. No, absolutely. <laughs> I, I said to <laughs> Nat, Um we had a quick break, uh, a quick bathroom break, and I said to that. I just feel like when I have some of these conversations, I just feel really stupid. <laughs> no. <laughs> we did yeah, another but... podcast with someone so... that
2: Josh knew quite well, but I didn't know. Right. Um and it was quite similar. I'm like, oh, my God, he's so intelligent. He's oh, <laughs> stupid. And I was just patting his stuff. Like, it's okay, you're not stupid. It's okay,
3: you're not stupid. <laughs> not at all. You're probably more qualified than me. We've just had different journeys, different experience. I think what's really cool about this and you two in particular, and I feel like a great connection with you guys, is that we need to give more of a voice to people working in this sector. Yeah. You know, like if I – when I first started as a youth worker, I was like I had no idea what I was doing. If I had – Podcasts were podcasts even invented back nah. in 2004 or something.
1: I think maybe Ricky Gervais. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is awfully <literally laughs> difficult yes. to get hold of. And <laughs> you probably weren't learning very much. No, it, right?
3: no. <laughs> but exactly. if there was something like this around for me i would have greatly benefited from it because i think 100%. it's important to know that you're not on your own yeah and that there's different kind of thought leaders out there that you can lean on and you won't agree with them all but i think this kind of um podcast is really going to create an environment for people to learn and connect and i think that's incredibly important mm, absolutely and also the surprise reason why we're going to chuck some money in as well so i had a chat to our cfo and i saw your online coffee thing and i was like you guys definitely need some help oh. so we're going to chuck a thousand bucks in to get <gasps> kickstarted.
1: No. Yes, hundred oh percent. More mate. than happy to. You're joking. No, wow.
3: no, no, not at all. We think it's really important that we have a voice in this sector, so we're more than happy to. Oh
1: my goodness! Thank you. Thank you. So very much. Welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. You're
3: more than welcome. Thanks for
1: having me. You're that's gonna, fucking wild. That's uh, you're going to host a podcast. <laughs> or like. uh um, bought the rights like, three We've got three presenters
2: now. <laughs> my goodness, Josh, Matt and Ben.
1: That's amazing. Thank you <laughs> Thank so much. So no, no, much. no.
3: You're more than welcome. I think you're doing a great job.
1: I oh, appreciate oh. that. That's amazing. Well, we, I'm like shocked by that. So. Yeah. We're going to end with a question, but just before we do, we, um, we're we going to be implementing, a, a, we touched on it before we started recording, but essentially a, a, a sort of reverse advertising thing. So okay. for people that are listening, we did touch on it in a previous episode, but we're going to be promoting... Um, community services, events, programs, and things like that where where people want us to. We're not just going to find them and promote them. But, um, (laughs) you know, please, uh, if there's things that are coming up for youth projects, whether it's a new program, um, services that you're you're launching, or if you you want to spread the the word about something, um, please let us know. Yeah, we'll be more than happy to share. Yeah, definitely. so.
3: Amazing. We would definitely take you up on that. I think my immediate mind goes to our Christmas appeal, which launches this week. So we'll definitely reach out with some information.
1: I mean, do you know anything right now? Yeah, I do, I do. So
3: we're about to start uh, an online donation campaign because this year we typically run uh, in partnership with Blake's Feast, a private catering Mm -hmm. firm, a long table lunch for Christmas for people experiencing homelessness. So we do it right up Hosey Lane and it's kind of very fine dining, you know, the white tablecloths and catered ham and prawn and salads and stuff. we can't do it this year during COVID. Mm. So, what we've decided to do is raise some money and actually give every person that we support and every person that's sleeping rough their own sort of Christmas hamper, but not something that's been donated. Like, we want them to have to- some toiletries, some gifts, some proper ham, some, you know, some proper eggnog and that kind of stuff, and it to be high quality. Nice. So, we launch a social media campaign. I'm pretty sure it's at the end of this week. Um, But if anyone wants to go onto our website, youthprojects.org.au, promote it, get people donating, no donation too small or too big, um, we'll make sure that we get some decent Christmas presents to people that need it this year.
2: That's so amazing because I think people forget the silly season's hard enough for everybody at the best of times and I think people forget... like. I'll make comments around, you know, like a young person going to detox to spend Christmas in detox. They're like, oh, fuck, why would they want to be in detox? I'm like, mm. Well, because they've got no one else to that's spend right. Christmas with. That's And that's right. a safe place for them to be. Mm. Um, or even, you know, people not having a Christmas lunch with it. It's something that generally people take for granted and unless it's something that you're um, exposed to or you work with. There's a real... Um, misinterpretation for that i think so it's such an amazing thing to do for people that often we get wrapped up in the silly season and we're we're, you know some people dealing with their own freaking families at christmas time is traumatizing enough enough, enough. (laughs) let alone thinking about you know thousands of australians out there that would be either you know homeless sleeping rough and and not have anybody to spend christmas with or even just a safe place to have
3: incredibly important
2: yeah absolutely before we wrap up we do ask at the end of every podcast if you had any sort of words of wisdom or pieces of advice for new workers or people changing career paths or I think at this point I'm going to change the question maybe people in their career feeling a little bit you know defeated and deflated at this time of year and particularly past COVID um what what are some words of wisdom
3: Sure, okay, I feel like I've um, I've spoken at people throughout this whole no. podcast, but I think my final piece of advice is something that I live by and it comes to me immediately, and that is um, always remember to listen to hear, yeah. not listen to respond. Because I think that when um, we're engaging in debate or conversation or we're having a hard time, we're typically listening to then get our point across. What we need to be better at is listening to hear what the other person is actually trying to say. Mm -hmm. And it may not be a position that we agree with, it might not be a position that we understand, but by listening to hear and letting go of the response actually opens you up to a very different conversation. And I think that's incredibly important. So if you are enduring a really tough time in your career or maybe your manager shitting you or you're feeling like you're stuck, Actually step outside of yourself and just actually have a look at the situation, listen to people, ask people some really critical questions around their view of you because people's perception is their reality. I think it's incredibly important.
2: Yeah, I love that one. That's a really good piece of advice that I've definitely found it on a quote somewhere. But, no, I I definitely agree because I think people are so quick to want to be able to respond or even people not necessarily um, that they're Um, intention is something negative, but sometimes people are so panicked that they won't have a response that they're like, it's okay, okay not to is. have a
3: response. Yeah. Just say, actually, I'm feeling a bit anxious right now. I'll say it all the time. It's, you know, actually, I'm not really sure on that. Can you leave it with me? Yeah. I'll come back to you. Yeah. Or yeah. I
2: don't know the answer, but I'll figure it out and I'll get back to you.
0: Yeah. But, that's yeah, right.
2: Huge. Because I think even everybody can think of a time that they're in a training, for example, and the trainer goes, nobody volunteers. I'm going to pick people out. Yeah. And it's that panic. And half the time, like it's happened to me, and I've been like, fuck, I don't even remember what she's going to point me out and ask me about because I'm too panicked <laughs> about trying to think of something to think about that I forgot the question
3: so true but the other thing i will say i just thought of a really practical example if you are a person that schedules meetings for meetings sake stop it immediately yeah. i've literally started responding to meeting invites like this looks like it could be a dm yeah. like i'm not coming to that that's ridiculous and yeah. if it's a brainstorming session or creativity or someone's got a challenge i'm coming awesome. I, or if it's like a project report and everyone needs to be on the screen at the same time great but like 90 percent of the meetings that we had pre covid and i was like these don't need to exist anymore and i'm just not coming mm. that's ridiculous call me
2: yeah have a
3: conversation. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's right. No more meetings about meetings, I wholeheartedly agree. Oh,
3: God, just stop. my meetings, they drive me <laughs> insane. Unless I'm chairing the meeting, of course, and then everyone has to come.
2: Yeah, everyone has to listen. <laughs> it's my time. That's us. Brilliant. Thank you so much for no, coming No, thank on. you, guys. I
3: really yeah, enjoyed it. It
1: was so much fun. Yeah, I really appreciate it.
3: Awesome. Thanks. It feels You're like I've legend. had some sort of therapeutic intervention for myself. <laughs> it's always good to talk.
2: And us. It is always good to talk, I think.
1: Thanks for listening yeah. to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Please like and share the podcast, invite your friends and colleagues into the group and get in touch if there are any guest speakers you'd like to hear from or any topics you'd like covered. Take care and enjoy your week.